Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is an ABC podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am Lucy Race and I am your host this week. I am joined by my ladies down the line and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I am Rana Hussain. And I am Julia Kiera. How are you both? How are you doing? Good. Spring's sort of in the spring. air. <laughs> yes. Spring is in the air. It's interesting, isn't it? It's the first day of spring and normally that would mean that we're starting to think about football finals, the Premiership Cup would be starting to do photo shoots at the MCG. That's not happening. (laughs) It's on an aeroplane. Did you see the footage? It's been like shipped up to Queensland with like 400 staff of the AFL and media and families and um, everyone's out of here. I know, I'm such a Victorian because I got so protective. I was like, no, come back. (laughs) You don't go away, you stay here. (laughs) Is it going into quarantine? Is that why it's left so early? I think so. So I think, I wonder where the cup quarantines. Does it have like a special little cabinet in the back of a bar somewhere? <laughs> yeah, just but constantly being sprayed with uh, alcohol spray perhaps or... And it has to um, keep, you know, 1.5 metre distance from all the little tennis trophies and... <laughs> <laughs> it's got an ADF yeah. detail... Oh, I love it. Well, you know, you're always meant to wear gloves when you touch the Premiership Cup. So it's been doing safe um, and healthy for quite some time. So I think we will hear tomorrow officially whether the day that you get the pod, actually, we will, you know, find out that the grand final is most probably going to be in Queensland at the Gabba. No real surprises. But for now, let's turn our minds back to round 14. We may have just started round 15. Round 14 only (laughs) finished a few days ago. What did you make of it? There were so many close games. There was at least two of those games were a game of two halves. So (laughs) that makes four halves. Um, What did you guys make of it, Rana? Oh, look, I had a pretty great round because both of my teams won. So I have to say that it was probably the most joyous I've been in a round this season. Watching Richmond win against West Coast Eagles Tess and I were texting the whole night and the joy was just how like I could feel it all the way from Ballarat. It was amazing. And she she and I just felt like that was the win of the season for us. And it was an important win uh, because I think we really needed to come out strong and they did. I couldn't go past Noah Bolter's performance that night. He is a young up and coming star for Richmond and 
people always compare him to Alex Rance, which I hate because he's his own person in his own right and he deserves his own story. But I think he, he really um, won my heart. But then to watch Melbourne beat St Kilda in Alice Springs was also really great. The atmosphere was amazing. But to see Melbourne, who have had such a troubling history and a tough time, you know, do something pretty special and hold on in that game was pretty good to watch. And I'm just loving Petrarca's season this year. I can't wait to see him win a Brownlow. Oh. <laughs> She's gone she early. So what was your highlight, Julia? Well, look, my highlight wasn't watching my own team, Carlton, but it was seeing um, football in Alice Springs to see such a good game as well that came really down to the wire. For those that recall, there was supposed to be another AFLW game in Alice Springs in March, which I was fortunate to go to, but that game was played in front of no spectators. So it was beautiful to see that a game had actually got to Alice Springs and um, that you know, the people of Alice Springs were were able to come along and lots of people from kind of surrounding communities come into town as well. So I was pleased to see that and to see, love a bit of a a goal review debate, you know, that that tends to fill the, uh, (laughs) fill a few pages of newspapers afterwards. But look, it's, it's hard to talk after a weekend where Carlton loses to Collingwood. I don't think, I know that you guys go for big, Melbourne teams but there's just something about participating in that game as a losing supporter that's just really brutal it's just brutal (laughs) it's pretty tough it's pretty tough I I feel like I can probably rival you given that like full disclosure we're recording this podcast Mm -hmm. on Tuesday night I've just watched Hawthorne lose to Adelaide and I really had only just got out of the hole from watching Hawthorne lose to Essendon last Thursday. So I I do feel your pain. I do have a highlight though, which I think is maybe a mark of my maturity because my highlight, I have to say, is the return of Joe Danaher. Mm. So I'm going to be very grown up about it and say, you know, that to come back his first game in 467 days, um, to come out and play that game where I think he had 14 disposals, something like 10 marks. He mm. kicked three goals, three. He was so instrumental in Essendon's incredible comeback. But the thing that I loved about him the most was just watching the way he celebrates, his, his smile. He seems so happy. Mm. He's not kind of over the top aggressive he's just he just looks like he's happy out there and having a wonderful time I actually think that we should rename him Joy Danaher (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty nice and look he is he's a great player to watch and and I think because so much has been written about him over the last however long over a year you forget that you've probably heard more than you've seen of him so to see him play such a kind of joyful game he, he looked like he hadn't missed a, a beat that that was amazing but I'm actually shocked now I've just put two and two together Hawthorne has just lost today we're recording this on Tuesday night and you played on Hawthorne that surely there's still food that you digested on Hawthorne on Thursday <laughs> that's still in your bowel like if you had corn on Thursday you're seeing it on Tuesday that shouldn't be, be allowed to happen that is too I, quick. I totally agree. And we're playing again on Sunday. So, mm. oh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know how to extend the metaphor. <laughs> 
<laughs> so maybe we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, there's nowhere to go from there. Yeah. So are you guys ready to melee in a safe and socially distant way, ladies? Yes. Absolutely. Shall we get into it? On Monday, Michael Warner published a story in the Herald Sun which revealed that Danny Frawley had stage 2 CTE when he died and it's a really sad story and it's a story that has ramifications not just for Danny and his family but for other footballers and and other sports people really. CTE as our listeners will know is a devastating neurological condition that can only be diagnosed post-mortem. Its suspected cause is repetitive head trauma and concussion is part of that but it's Actually, the theory is more to do with repetitive subconcussive knocks to the head, which makes it you know, very difficult to try and avoid and is very difficult for particular sporting codes like the AFL to, I guess, understand it and to make the necessary changes to, to keep athletes safe. Danny's the second AFL footballer to be diagnosed with CTE. I think you'll remember Polly Farmer it was announced earlier this year, had stage 3 CTE. Danny's wife, Anita, said that she didn't want to wait to release this information because she thinks it's important that other people know about it and know about it now. And she has also said that it's helped to confirm some of her suspicions about what was going on with Danny. The AFL was approached about this story and one of the things Gillan said was, and I'll read a quote here, that in our discussions, Anita had been really clear that she wants the learnings from Danny's death to continue to provide a benefit to sport and we'll continue to work with Anita and the family and researchers to learn as much as we can and continue to make whatever changes are necessary to keep the people who play our game safe. What I think is really interesting about this story and what is the real challenge is that we can make changes in terms of rules and I think you know the AFL has done a really good job in doing that making sure that the head is sacrosanct as much as it can be but I wonder what other things we can be doing and something that often comes to mind with me is is culture and tied very closely to that is language it's something that I've really noticed this year that when you see players have big collisions or have concussions or you know heavy hits the language that some commentators use around it falls back into old habits of bravery and I guess tying those actions to being courageous or earning the respect of your teammates and what I really worry about is what that message sends to other people who are playing the game, you know, particularly at other levels. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, no, I, I agree, Lucy. I think what stands out to me is when you hear commentary from the commentators who alongside the vision, we'll see the repeated vision of a, someone going back with the mark from all different sorts of angles and that there's it's seen to be even the right thing to do strategically and courageously to endear yourself to your teammates. And there's all this language around heroism around it, which is just ridiculous. But, you know, I'm thinking of a particular example this year where Sam Walsh for Carlton, I don't know if you recall, he he drifted back into the defensive 50 and ran and took a mark, but it was in the line of the forward and the defender running out to greet that football. And I would just say that 
that that's strategically we shouldn't be coaching that. We shouldn't be coaching players to run with that kind of a shape. You shouldn't be coaching players. Yes, maybe you need to sit in that hole. We go often want rucks to sit in that hole and take that mark. But for you to run flat chat backwards into two people that you know are running the other way is probably not how we need to coach the game. And players shouldn't feel that they need to do it. Now, why do they feel that they need to do it? Well, because we talk about it as being such a important part of being a great teammate and a courageous player and a strong player and not a soft player. So, yeah, I think we need to do what we can to change the way we think about the game and what makes mm. a good player and what makes a player feel like they've contributed to their team. I couldn't agree more. And I just I think often the criticism is that, oh, you're going to change the game if we start to tweak it around protecting the head. And I just don't think it will be a worse game if we do. And I'll be honest, I used to love the ga- I used to love watching the big hits and the big tackles. And until I started working in and around football, and this is totally ignorant on my part, but I, it didn't occur to me to consider the athlete and their lives. And I remember saying to Shane Edwards that I love watching the big hits and he said, oh, you like the bits that we all hate, that we're actually nervous about going into. And until he said that, I went, oh, yeah, of course. What am I thinking? And it totally just flipped it around for me. And I think the other thing that happens in commentary a lot is there's a lot of emphasis on when the player goes off the field or physically seems injured, but then there's a lot of minimising around, oh, you know, he could have, lucky, you know, he's okay, or oh, that could have been so much worse, when we actually don't know what the damage is yet, especially mm. around head injury. Mm. And what we're forgetting is that the impact is a lifelong impact potentially, and our emphasis and our we value are they going to be right to play the next game so much that that's where our focus is, and we forget that what happens to them every knock is doing something to their lifespan or their brain's ability to function. I get it, but we just absolutely need to keep that in mind, I feel. And the other question that comes up for me then is, how much are we investing in research around this stuff? You know, Anita talking about not wanting other families to go through this. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think CTE, we can only diagnose it after death, which means we frankly need so much more intel on this stuff. And I can imagine that there's a perceived disincentive for sport and governments to fund research around this stuff because potentially then we're talking about changing the game. So it's fraught, but I think if we really want to care about this and we absolutely should, it's got to have more money behind research. So there are a number of players who've already committed to donating their brains to the Australian Sports Brain Bank, but that's you know that's a fairly gruesome way of, of thinking about that research. Conrad Marshall wrote a really good article today, I think it was in The Age. It really went through a whole lot of details about CTE and concussion and where the research is at the moment and everything that I get. You know, it's such a comprehensive article. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, I think it's really useful to be across all of those things because you know if you're playing sport if you've got kids playing sport you really want to be doing whatever you can to protect your head I'm going to quote Adam Fowler here who is a neurosurgeon who I've been following on Twitter and his pinned tweet says neurosurgeon here make every effort to avoid hitting your head Hmm. 
Rana, you wrote an article back in April called Pause Due to COVID-19 Gives AFL a Chance to Build a More Agile and Inclusive Game. With some big changes that are happening in the AFL and at clubs and across leagues, have you had a chance to revisit what you sort of were positing then and have any of your wishes come true? Oh, look, I wrote, yeah, I wrote that back in April and I will say it was written from a place of nervousness and looking ahead at a new world and wondering where AFL will sit in in and amongst all of that. And I asked some big picture questions and I just want to read a couple of things that I wrote to kind of set the scene. So I said that when the game does come back, the AFL and its clubs will be tasked with rebuilding it, its structures, its systems, its culture and its spirit. When this time comes, I pray that those in charge do things differently. If survival is only for the elite, then the game will not be any more than the disappointing spectacle that was the soulless round one of the men's competition this month. (laughs) That was a bit scathing. Uh, If the most privileged voices in football are the only ones that have risen above others in this calamity of a year, then this game has been irresponsible in its commitment to its community. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like the jury's still out on this, but And the dust is yet to settle, I guess. But I don't know. I'm not sure. I feel like we started AFL again with just going hammer and tong at playing this men's season when we did drop the women's season like a hot potato a bit. It doesn't, I don't know, I'm not sold yet. With The AFL have just come out with their new restructure. And I will say that among their strategic priorities is that they will put fans first. So in a newly formed department led by Kylie Rogers, there'll be an enhanced focus on the fans and audience, keeping the game affordable and accessible and focusing on growth in northern markets. And they've also talked about investment in community football and acknowledging that despite financial challenges, they want to grow grassroots football and support community clubs. I'm so glad to hear that and I'm so pleased to hear that as part of, see that written down and be part of their strategic priorities, I'm yet to see what those plans look like and what it yields. So I guess I'm watching this space, but, you know, we haven't had VFL men's, we haven't had VFLW, Next Generation Academy, which is the AFL-led academies for multicultural and Indigenous talent, is still being determined, but it will likely be a much, a very different outfit. I guess we have been had continued reassurances that AFLW will remain as it is. Uh, so we, I guess, have to hold our breath for that. But there's no doubt that clubs everywhere are laying people off from community departments to financial departments to everywhere. So footy is going to look and feel very different. And I just, I'm not sold yet, even with what the AFL has put out, that anything is going to be that different what do you guys think we have seen you know some big changes you talk when you talk about pathways and I guess second tier specifically for the VFL and the NEFL I Mm. I don't think we talked about it last week that they will be combining so that will mean that all of those um, second tier teams up the eastern side of the country will be playing in a in a competition together one of the things I have seen this week announced is some changes to the NAB League. Julia, have you had a look at those? 
Yeah, so next year NAB League will, will be slightly different. It's usually the, the comps run under 16s and under 18s, but they're going to lift that to under 17s and under 19s, I guess taking into account this kind of missed year, um, even though there was a, a little bit of uh, NAB that happened right at the beginning before everything uh, locked down. So that's going to happen. The the NAB season, so for the boys, will be a bit shorter and they'll kind of run back to back. The girls will flow into the boys. But something that's come out in the last um, few days from Paul Amy is about the coaching. So what's going to happen is that the head coaching position will be a full-time position, but that coach will, will coach both the boys and the girls' teams, which is interesting. We'll get back to my thoughts on that in a sec. Um, but then uh, one of the other things that Paul spoke to is that the way that the AFL has opened up the applications for those coaching positions was that it was only to existing AFL employees. Now, NAB AFL girls coaches, their contracts finished in May, so they weren't AFL uh, employees at the time. So none of those girls coaches can apply for that full-time coaching role, which is interesting. (laughs) It seems weird, doesn't it? Like kind of arbitrary because it's a matter of timing about whether you were an AFL employee at the time or not. Yeah, it does. Right? Yes, it seems arbitrary. It seems, I, I, I'm wondering, is there some kind of, you know, worker unionized rule that they are sticking with? Because otherwise, it just seems really silly. Yeah, it just seems like you're opening yourself up to criticism about the coaching pool. And it's not to say that, you know, there, there aren't many women coaches in NAB league girls anyway there are some but I guess it's kind of totally disregarding the expertise that might be held in those girls coaches and yeah I'm really I'm really got mixed feelings about it I think more full-time coaching positions is overall really positive but I don't see this as this blend being quite what I had envisaged and just also I think if you're coaching that age group you really have to have a passion about coaching juniors and I don't think you necessarily have a passion for coaching boys teams and girls teams and I would just feel weird about that you know that you've suddenly got to flip between these two things coaching boys and girls is quite different and you've got to hold both it's a huge responsibility I don't know what are your thoughts I just think it's really odd I found it a little bit odd, I guess, just, you know, based on, you know, that the kind of arbitrary nature of who is eligible to apply. And I mean, one of the other things I noticed is that there's talk that the seasons will be quite a bit shorter. Mm. And there was, they made mention of the fact that they'll be relying on watching local club games and, and school games. You know, part of me thinks I know what the load is like for some of the boys that I've seen who've played NAB League and have been playing school football or club football at the same time and in some respects I wonder whether that's actually a good thing. I just would hope that there's not barriers based on which clubs or or which schools that athletes are playing at. I think it throws up a whole bunch of other problems with that in that we already know that that for, for AFLM that the majority of players now come out of the private school system and play in that club that school footy system and you know how disadvantaged are you if you, if you don't if you're not in that system and you're only playing club footy 
Brana? Yeah, I think that's my biggest worry here. And it's across the board. And we know this, you can have good intentions, but when money is tight and people are stressed, potentially creativity and innovation goes out the window and that bigger picture thinking goes out the window and we constrict our our view of things. And so I worry that people who are already facing barriers to owning this game will then just face even more and be shut out even more. And that's my biggest fear in all of this. And there's been a real kind of drive within the league and at Clubland, I think, to maintain all of the good work that has happened. But I am cynical about how long people can actually hold on to that when things continue to get tighter. We know, you know, the economy is going to suffer even more. I just wonder if people are really putting in solid plans around being truly inclusive. And I just haven't seen anything that speaks to that yet. And I'm holding my breath. So far away from the local leagues of Australian football, we've seen another big story out of the US. Um, Sadly, there was another police shooting last week and we saw a wave of boycotts by athletes. What did you make of it all, Rana? Oh, look, I've been keeping an eye on it. It's, It's actually a huge, huge moment in sport this. So for those who don't know, the Milwaukee Bucks decided to boycott their playoffs game. And this was a team taking collective action with real world consequences. This was after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And this is a huge moment in sport. And some have called it the biggest political moment in 50 years, because it's not just an athlete taking a stand and shining a light. Some are calling it a strike, actually, and this is akin to a worker's strike in sport, which is huge. And I think for me, that's the thing that's been really fascinating in that we've seen a movement, and for a long time we've seen athletes, athletes speak up about issues that they care about, but this is an action that was really driven by wanting outcomes. So these players decided that their job was going to be on the line, that their money was going to be on the line and their industry's money was going to be on the line and that they would take that act to make sure that something changed. And it has. There's been a lot of discussion with the NBA to look at voting and making sure that there is better access for people to vote. Uh, And I'm just fascinated by this new wave of athletes who are taking even stronger stances and collective stances. And no longer can we kind of separate sports and politics anymore. Like that argument that sport should just be sport, I feel like is done. You cannot separate the two anymore. And these athletes are showing that. And of course, you heard them talking about being black and feeling this moment and feeling like they absolutely couldn't take the court and play. And we've seen tennis follow suit and soccer and baseball. And it just, I'm saddened that we're at this point, but I'm also heartened that we're at this point as well, that people with the platform are really using their platforms. I think the thing that I found most interesting is that I think it was almost you know four years to the day that Colin Kaepernick had taken a knee for all of those athletes they will have seen what happened to Colin and there seemed like there was almost no hesitation that basically once the Milwaukee Bucks decided to boycott there was then no playoffs for three days and as you said Rana just spilt out into a whole lot of other different sports and even to the point of Naomi Osaka 
saying that she wasn't going to play and her deciding not to take the court actually meant that the ATP and the WTA decided to postpone all games on that Thursday and and basically made a statement of support. The other thing that's really interesting is, again, as you said, that conversation about, you know, stick to sports. And athletes have just been very, very articulate in saying, I am who I am. This is who I am when I leave the court. And if you don't like it, bad luck. I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but I love the kind of recognition from from athletes and now more and more from the viewing public that you can't separate out the sporting acts from the sports person. And so expecting someone to just entertain you on the field on the field or the court and do all those magnificent athletic things that we like to watch and we like to ride that you know the drama of our team winning or losing all that stuff you absolutely can't separate it out from the people that are doing it from their experiences from their experiences of race of economic inequality their experiences of welfare their experience of the police you can't separate it out just because you want to as a viewer just because you want to be transported into the you know of just watching a beautiful kind of sports story unfold that's the viewer's need and it's not the reality and so I I love that we've kind of got to this moment and by striking they didn't they deny the viewer the opportunity to watch them right and that's really powerful because for, for so long and with Colin Kaepernick yeah he took a knee but the game still happened you know that the viewer wasn't kind of didn't have to reckon with losing the thing that they love and therefore reflecting so I think that that's really powerful but yeah it's only come I think because of now we're at this moment where people feel like they can collectively do these things together instead of one person just striking out on their own Absolutely. And just on that, the other thing I find really fascinating is that some people are saying that because the NBA are together in the bubble in Orlando, that for the first time these athletes are mingling and in each other's space when they would normally never be. It's not like the AFL. They all are very separate. They all run with their own entourages. You know, what people are saying is that in the bubble at the moment, they're actually interacting and having conversations and that potentially this collective has come up with more active solutions to what's going on in the world. And that is kind of amazing when Mm. you think about it, that this moment in time, COVID, has led to this kind of action as well. It's sort of incredible and I do feel like it's a real moment in sport. Especially because we're all having Zoom meetings where you can arrive at no conclusions and it just shows you the power of being in the same room as one another. You've got to be in the room where it happens. 100%. So while we've been on our Zoom meetings, especially here in Victoria, we've missed going to the football. And one of the things that has actually really delighted us and kept us going has been all of you guys, like the Outer Sanctum fans in other states who've been sending us messages, photos and videos of their footy experiences and we've been living them vicariously which is fantastic. One such fan is Melanie Ray. She's a passionate docker from WA and Kate had a chat with Melanie earlier in the week. So Mel you've been able to continue to go to the footy in Perth throughout COVID. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to be able to continue going to the footy but doing it in this quite unique socially distanced way incredibly exciting to know that they were coming back and to be able to go and it's a big part of my social life which is I guess for everybody as well but 
like winter <laughs> stuck in your house is not that much fun. So knowing that you could actually just go back to the football was really exciting. There was a little bit of low-level anxiety at the start to go, is this the right thing to be doing? Should we really be amongst 30,000 people in a stadium? So I thought long and hard and listened to a lot of Norman Swan's <laughs> advice. <laughs> being outside and being, you know, amongst that crowd, I have felt fairly comfortable knowing that there's no community spread in WA. So it was exciting just to watch it on TV. What is the what's the atmosphere like between fans from opposing teams? Is it different? Is it any different or is there still the same rivalry that there always has been? Collingwood Geelong game for WA people, that was like a history making because it wasn't like our team. So there was a lot of WA Collingwood and WA Geelong fans. So there was a lot of atmosphere there but that's not really something that we get to experience in Perth that's something that you get to experience when you go and watch football in Melbourne it, it was really exciting to be part of that to hear like two sides of the crowd and then our, our very first Dockers game was the Derby and again that was a really different experience 2020 is just full of different experiences but different experience to football this year it's probably <laughs> it's probably more like when you go to football in Melbourne for us which is very different for 2020. What has footy meant to you during this time, Mel, to be during this during this period? Has it meant more to you than it has in previous years or has it been a different relationship? I've been going to the football with a couple of like a group of people. One of them, we've been going to the football for about 17 years. So it was almost like a return to normality. Like if the season was to be called off, I don't think I would be, you know, like I've I've tried to be not too attached to this season. So I think having the women's season cut off the way it did hurt a lot and the Dockers were so close to getting there that I've kind of maybe to protect myself haven't really invested too much in the outcome of the season like the love of football is still there but it's also a big understanding of like there's a lot that's making this season happen. Talking about a big lot of effort um, a few weeks ago you did this really beautiful thing for (laughs) us (laughs) which is you went to the Hawthorne Freo game and you took photos all along the way and, and tweeted them out like a kind of running story, if you like, to, to take us along with you and make us all feel like we were there uh, with you at the game, which was just so beautiful and so so kind of you. And it was one of my first opportunities to see what the Perth Stadium is like. I haven't been there before. If you were to give us your best pitch, Mel, for why you think <laughs> should get the the grand final what would it be firstly there is vegetarian food at many places for you (laughs) I really think that the MCG is the home of the grand final and will be forever and a day but this year is not going to be so to be part of history and to have the football somewhere else is huge and I think the spectacle of that needs to be really highly considered. So Perth Stadium is just beautiful. The fans in WA who have followed football for so many years and if they do, they want to go to the grand final, it's so hard. It costs so much money and it's really a a huge effort. So to the fans that have been there for so long and I can't think of anything better than the light show at that stadium after a team wins. The spectacle that would be able to be broadcast not just in Australia but around the world that stadium is world-class stadium I would be desperate to try and get tickets if they do (laughs) 
if that was a possibility. I'm sure Gil will put your name on the list. (laughs) I'm Chelsea Randall and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. It's that time of the week. It is time to cross to Felicity and Nicole and see what they've got in the fifth quarter for this week. Hey, Nick, it's Felicity. (laughs) Hey, what are they thinking getting us together? What's that about? Did you think they're bullying us too, like by putting you and I together for a fifth quarter knowing from obviously from our karaoke night that neither of us can sing. <laughs> they're shaming us. They're actually, they're determined to mock us and, um, yeah, put us to shame. So I see what they're doing. And guess what? I'm not going to no. sing. So stuff them. <laughs> That's what I say. Absolutely. No, and besides, it's for our listeners. That's just not fair to them that they should have to suffer. No, nobody deserves that. So. <laughs> So what have you been up to, Ms. Race? What what has been filling your lockdown hours? Do you know, I'm actually struggling a little bit with the listening to things because it feels like such a guilty pleasure to put your headphones in and listen, you know, whether it's a podcast or an audiobook or something, when you're sitting with your family. You know, it feels like that's something you do when you're heading out or you're driving or something. So I've been listening to short versions, you know, rather than long-form type stuff. And the whole lockdown thing got me thinking about how much I love a particular podcast called Ear Hustle. I don't know if you've heard of Ear Hustle, Mm. but it's been on the air since 2017 and was the first podcast ever produced inside a prison. And so it it features uh, stories from California's San Quentin State Prison. It was produced or it started up by a a local artist, a lady named Nigel Poor. And originally she was working with a, a couple of men who were incarcerated at the time who have since been released. And so they're now producing from the outside and they, they still have people on the inside bringing these amazing stories. Um, it, it's really hard to describe. They, they really don't focus on crimes um, or why people are in uh, prison, but they follow stories of family and impact and relationships and entrepreneurship, you know, stories about how you know, some of these people have set up like operating businesses out of their cell, you know, little cafes where with the most MacGyver techniques, they can take, you know, five different items from, um, you know, the, the co-op where they can buy you know, noodles and, and, and things. And they're creating this extraordinary food that they sell. And um, I, did, I find it extraordinary and was really thrilled this year to see it got nominated for a, um, a Pulitzer. Um, so in the first time that audio reporting has been recognised in that category, they described it as having a consistently surprising and beautifully crafted series on life. And I just wanted to play you a little snippet just so you could hear that sort of audio craft and that storytelling that goes into it. I love animals. Oh, yeah. Since I've been in prison, I've had black widows, tarantulas, a lot of grasshoppers, beetles. At San Quentin, Inmates aren't allowed to have pets, but some guys get creative, like roach here. Gophers, rabbits, I had four swallows, a toad, praying mantis, 21 snails, frog, a red-breasted finch whose arm broke, pigeons, I had a desert mole that was partially paralyzed, teddy bear hamster, just really lazy with an attitude, the centipede, and it was a wolf. It was a bad little monster. I had two fish that had babies twice. I had a tarantula broke out one time. My celly said, Yo, spider got out. So anyway, if you love great storytelling and you are interested in life in actual lockdown, I highly recommend Ear Hustle. 
So there's me. What about you, Nick? No, that's, I have actually listened to a few episodes. It was one of those ones that when I got my new phone, it dropped off and I haven't reconnected. So thanks for the rec because, you know, um, trying to, it's, it's not about filling time because I have plenty of work to do, but it is sometimes about just getting your mind off things. So uh, the podcast world is getting lots of my attention at the moment. But on a different note, I've been, you know, I've got, even though I'm locked down with my daughters, we've realised that we weren't spending as much time actually being together um, and with, with my partner as well. So uh, we were, my youngest recommended we do a, a marathon of Harry Potter movies because it's something we can all embrace. Oh, I thought you meant an, I thought you were going to say an actual marathon. Yes. I was like, whoa. I'm On so the treadmill that we don't have because um, <laughs> we can't leave the house for that long to run a marathon. No, so this is a movie marathon, a much, much more my style, frankly, that involves couches and chocolate um, and popcorn. What's really interesting is, so I'm a young adult author and this is obviously the Harry Potter books are obviously iconic now. You can actually say that even though they're sort of semi-contemporary. I think they've, you know, they've, they've um, passed the, t- the test of time well and truly and will be around for a long time, setting aside issues around J.K. Rowling and, and her current uh, status. But, you know, the, the books themselves and the stories themselves are, you know, will be around for a long time. And so it's kind of, I'm kind of ashamed to say I've only read up to book five and book five just about broke me as a writer editor. It's, um you know, just the, it's just a, a hot mess, frankly. But, and I know I'll get some hate for that, but it just needed an edit. That's all. There's a lot there. I love what's there, but it just, yeah, it killed me. So I have not gone read beyond that. Having said that, I've seen all of the movies at different times spread out over years. And, um, you know, one movie would be two years after another, or I just didn't necessarily see them in the right order. And I had a massive revelation in this experience of sitting with the family and watching um, them back to back. If you watch them in order, they actually make sense. (laughs) This is quite a revelation to me because I have seen those last couple of movies many times, but not not with the lead up (laughs) beforehand. So it's actual genius. And they're numbered, so you don't get them wrong. Like you know which ones to watch in order. (laughs) This is genius, Nicole. Have they got the numbers in the right order? Like not like Star Wars where it's all a little yeah, bit. No, confusing. yeah, no. Luckily it is one to to eight though. That's where it gets tricky is seven's broken up. Book seven is broken mm-hmm. up into two. But you know, it's not too hard to follow. It's only the one that's in half and it's quite clear where where it ends. But anyway, it just it was just quite extraordinary for me. And he, and here's the thing, it was just beautiful to be in this completely lost in this world that's so all-encompassing you know the families there were all I've got my eldest is a massive Harry Potter fan and so we were getting the the oh this is the the deleted scene where you know explaining a you know a small character note that was missed in the Mm. edited version all the extra um, information and the backstory all the way through it and it was just fabulous I mean hours and hours we spread it out over a week with double movies and the on the weekend and I did slip did wait, stay awake for most of them. So that's, I feel like, a win. Oh, you have given me an idea. I think, <laughs> I don't know if I can do all the Harry Potters, but definitely some some series I would, I would like to do and, yeah, sit on the couch with the kids and, and get into. Because you're right, you do. The more you're in your house, the more you go to your own space, don't you, and you really lose 
it's hard to describe how you can lose connection when you're all in such a small footprint. Yeah, it, it is really about that notion of quality time as opposed to just the quantity because there's plenty of quantity. No issue with that. We're yeah. in each other's faces all the time. But yeah, really in our own little worlds, a lot of it, which, which is also important too. But I think having these dedicated times where we're all just sitting together and eating way too much chocolate, I think it's yeah. just been lovely. So we're going to, Star Wars is actually going to be the next one, which is, and we're having the debate about, do we watch them in the correct order or do we watch them in the made order? But yeah, we'll, we'll um, it, right. still, that's, the jury's out on that one. But tell me, have you been reading any poetry lately? I should mention that. Um, we have a little announcement. Our, our amazing Alicia sometimes has recently been endowed with the, won the Bruce Dorr National Poetry Prize for 2020. This is an extraordinarily prestigious award. Thousands of people enter and her poem, Life Cycles of Our Trash and Treasure Market, is gorgeous. I encourage you all to read it. You know, we, we, we love Alicia and her, her poetry. We've always celebrated her ability with language. She's quite established and lots of people recognise her talent. But this is something extraordinary, something really um, something really to be proud of. We're super proud of Alicia. Um, so please, we encourage you to read her poem. We'll have a link up on the show notes. And, you know, give her a shout out on social media. This is a massive accomplishment. It is the preeminent poetry prize in this country. And our Alicia sometimes won it for 2020. So congrats, Alicia. And, yeah, team everyone get out there and give her a, a round of applause so it's nearly time for us to get out of here have you got any last business before we wrap this little puppy up julia yes well excitingly the aflw draft nomination opened today so if you're an aspiring player and you want your name on the big uh, list that list managers will be looking at for draft day uh, it's time to put your nomination in oh do i have enough time to get fit <laughs> probably not uh i also just wanted to mention that i actually missed the carlton collingwood game because i was napping so that i could stay up and watch the Tour de France and I just wanted to shout out to uh, give a little shout out to a friend of the pod Bridie O'Donnell who is doing an amazing job on the commentary team for the tour she's just such a breath of fresh air she's funny she's smart she obviously knows what she's talking about and I'm just loving listening to her and the tour I have to say at the moment as much as I love my footy the tour is really hitting the spot for me at the moment France travel and sport it's got everything yeah i have to agree with you rana it's always soothing and it's even better with a bit of bridey on the side Mm -hmm. so tune into that so thank you so much everybody for tuning in and listening to us for another week we love getting your messages we love getting your reviews if you feel like jumping on itunes giving us a rate and a review and then there's really only one thing left to say go Go footy. footy